Last week I did a topical sermon. If you weren't here and you want to listen to it, it's up at sermonaudio.com. Um, I titled it, um, what I title it? Racism, Police Brutality, and Leftist Thought. So this week I want to get back to going through the book of Acts, which we've been doing for about a year and a half now. And today I want to try to cover all of chapter 23. So you can open up to Acts chapter 23 or scroll on your phone to Acts 23, however you do it. By the way, happy birth, happy birthday. Happy Father's Day. We had a bunch of birthdays this past week. <laughs> so, you know me, I'm not big on all these things. So, I didn't do a Mother's Day sermon on Mother's Day, and I'm not going to do a Father's Day sermon on Father's Day. Although I do that with regular, some regularity, I also don't do it with some regularity. And in this case, what's good for the gander is good for the goose, right? I didn't do it on Mother's Day, so I'm not doing it on Father's Day. I'm just going to continue on through Acts 23. And this chapter is full of odd and sudden twists and turns. It's a fast-moving chapter, the narrative here is. So why don't we stand, we'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll go through verse by verse. Father, we give thanks and praise to you for this time that we have in your word, and we ask that you would use it for good. Help me to set forth that which you've given me to declare. Put a fire in the hearts of your people to serve you in the earth, O God. Lord, you see all the areas of ministry needed on this planet. And Lord, we just ask and pray that you put a fire in each one's heart to know what you would have them to do, that their lives would count with the days that you've given each one. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us, that you have redeemed us so we don't wander through life in sin and derision and just die, Lord, but we actually can live to glorify you and to enjoy you. We thank you for your redemption, Father. Be glorified here now in the preaching of your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Light of fire, we pray in each one's heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Could be seated. In verse 1, Paul uses the same formal address for Jewish people that he used in chapter, uh, the last chapter of verse 1. It starts off and it says in verse 1 of chapter 23, then Paul looked, looking earnestly at the council. Remember, he's been brought before the council here in Jerusalem because the, the fact that there was a large tumult that took place regarding him. He was rescued by the interposition of a magistrate, got to address the crowd on the stairs, was almost scourged, and got out of that because he was a Roman citizen. He asserted his right as a Roman citizen, escaped the scourging, and now the commander, this Roman commander, has him before the council. And he addresses the council by saying, men and brethren, And this is the formal address for Jewish people. He used it in verse 1 of chapter 22 when he's standing on the staircase addressing the people. So why was he using the formal Jewish address? Very simply, because in chapter 22 he was addressing Jewish people, and here in chapter 23 he's addressing Jewish leaders. He's addressing this council. His audience is Jewish, so he uses the formal address. The council talking about 
talked about here in Scripture is known as the Sanhedrin. And remember we talked at length about the Sanhedrin, the power they held politically, the wealth they held as men, very powerful men there in Jerusalem and in Israel at that time. Acts chapter 4, if you go back and listen to that sermon, we go into the Sanhedrin in depth. It consisted of 70 men plus the high priest. 70 men, the majority of which were part of the group called the Sadducees, and a minority group within that council were the Pharisees. So, Paul begins his address, men and brethren, and he says, first off, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And this brings us to the first sudden twist. Because Paul only gets out his first two sentences, and Ananias, the high priest, says, hey, bust him in the face. Bust him in the chops. That's what he says. Look at verses 2 through 5. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. For you sit to judge me according to the law and do not command me. And do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? And those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So here's our first sudden twist. Paul is struck in the face. And let's begin here because there's a number of things I want to point out to you in verses 2 through 5. Let's begin here by talking about who Ananias was. Ananias, the high priest, who was he? Well, he was the son of Netabaeus. And he was the high priest from 48 A.D. to either 58 or 59 A.D., depending on which historian or scholar you read. He was known for his avarice and for his violence. Yeah, the high priest was known for his avarice and his violence. Avarice, by the way, is just a highfalutin word, which means excessive greed for wealth and materialism. An unsatiable desire for wealth and gain. That's what avarice is. Now, I want to stop here for a second. And I want you to remember, this was a political office. The position of a high priest was a political office. The Sanhedrin was a political body. They were a quote, unquote, it's a political slash religious office or a religious slash political office. It's a religious slash political council or vice versa, whichever one you want to be first, whether religion or politics. It was both in one and the same. There was power and wealth attached to the office and to being a member of the council. There was very little about love for God there. Mere words. These men, the high priests, were puppets of the Romans. They had power and they had immense wealth. In other words, they had a vested interest in making sure the status quo remained the status quo. They had it good. They had power. They had wealth. And of course... We could make many analogies to America's clergy in our day regarding what I just said. But listen, this is a truth to remember most of all. 
And it is this, when things are bad in a nation, it attracts the best of men to public office and leadership. When things are bad in a nation, it attracts the best of men to public office and leadership. The bad men, the awful men, they oh, there's nothing in it for me except possibly death. Being mistreated, abused. Yeah, I, maybe even, yeah, I don't, I don't want to have anything to do with that. But when there's power and wealth and prestige to be obtained by public office, it attracts the worst of men. And America has been in that position for decades and decades and decades now, where political office attracts the worst of men. And that's where we're at. Not all are bad men, but almost nearly all are bad men. They're the worst of men. They really only care about their career, their prestige, the power and wealth they get to obtain through public office. They don't really care about honesty, right or wrong, justice. They don't care about those things. How do I know? I'm around them all the time. That's how I know. So Ananias was such a worse man. He was given to avarice and violence. Regarding his avarice, Josephus, remember he was a historian, contemporary at that time, he shares the story, amongst others, regarding Ananias' avarice, how he took the tithes from the common rank-and-file priests. They're already poor men. He would take the little money they had and then use that to give lavish bribes to Roman rulers and to Jewish leaders and businessmen. That's how wicked that guy was. And regarding the evils that he did, the violence that he conducted, he was a brutal, scheming man, Josephus said. He was involved in numerous assassinations. Assassinations which were done to strength, further strengthen his power or to expand his wealth. He was assassinated in 66 AD, by the way, when the Jewish nationalists had started their war with Rome and they killed him for his pro-Roman policies. Can't feel all that bad. But anyway, this was the man who ordered Paul to be struck. So number one on these verses of 2 through two through 5, we now know who Ananias is. Secondly, I want you to know that what Ananias ordered to be done to Paul was unlawful according to Jewish law. He was not to be hit in the face because under Jewish law, you have to be charged and you have to be found guilty and you're assumed innocent until you are found guilty and then you receive punishment. What was the law Paul was referring to? Probably based loosely out of Deuteronomy, if you're taking notes, 25 verses 1 and 2. Deuteronomy 25 verses 1 and 2. We know historically that under Jewish law, the rights of defendants were safeguarded and they were presumed innocent until proven guilty. Paul had not been charged, not to mention not convicted. So him being struck in the face was clearly against Jewish law. That's why he raises it. Plus, think of it. You're before this prestigious council, right? And you're supposed to be allotted your opportunity to give a defense and all of a sudden you're busted in the face two sentences into your talk? That would kind of take you by surprise. 
So that brings us to the third thing. The question is raised by scholars. Did Paul know that Ananias was the high priest or not? Because Paul says here, I did not know that he was the high priest. And so scholars, you know how scholars are. They make money off of being scholars. So they have to write about things verbosely forever and speculate and go on and on. Did he know him or did he not know him and all this kind of stuff. And regarding the question of whether he knew he was the high priest or not, I side with the scholars who believe Paul truly did not know Ananias was the high priest. Why? Well, without belaboring the matter, because I find their arguments more convincing. I find their arguments convincing. Number one, for example, Paul had spent precious little time in Jerusalem over the last 20 years, and the high priest changed with regularity, so he would not have recognized him. This was before photographs, Facebook, and things like that. You do understand that. You could hear of someone, but you don't know what they look like unless you've met them. Ananias was most likely not, number two, Ananias was most likely not in his vestments because of the nature of the council meeting. It was common for them not to wear their vestments at that type of gathering. And number three, Paul's word seems sincere in verse five when he says he didn't know. Seems sincere. So I believe he didn't know. And there's others who write, the scholars, and oh, he knew, and blah, blah, blah. I find their arguments unconvincing. The fourth thing I want you to note about this passage is this passage is routinely used by churchmen to convince their people and their congregations that they should not speak against the government when it does wrong or when a government official does wrong. You should not speak ill of them. In fact, many churchmen will bring evil politicians into their churches, allow them to get behind pulpits in order to brown-nose them for their own self-aggrandizement with their people. It's a disturbing thing to watch. I have listened to countless sermons over my lifetime where pastors are preaching about submission, and that's their whole thing. You've got to submit to the government. That's their main theme all the time. Submit, submission, submit, submission. Oh, and maybe every once in a blue moon, if they do something really crazy, we might not obey. <laughs> you know, they, That's like one little phrase in their whole sermon. But the whole sermon is submit, submission, submit, submission. And this is a common verse that they throw in to say that people like us, Christians who speak against evil being done by government or by a government official, are bad Christians. Because look what Paul said here. Paul says, oh, I did not know that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And then they apply that and say that, see, we should never speak evil of our civil rulers. Paul denounces the high priest. Paul refers to Ananias as a whitewashed wall which means he was accusing Ananias of being pristine and holy in outward appearance, but he was rotten inside. Yeah, that's what I would say about a guy who just busted me in the head and me busted in the mouth. A whitewashed wall looked good on the outside, but was rotten on the inside. The whitewash was a mere veneer. Again, you can make lots of application to American clergymen today on all these things. He is then informed that this is the high priest, Notice in Paul's response, notice he did not apologize. Notice that. 
Rather, he simply declares he did not know he was the high priest, and then he quotes God's law that it would be wrong for him to curse him, and he quotes Exodus 22, verse 28, which Paul states it as here in Acts, or Luke, I should say, records it as, quote, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people, unquote. It says in Exodus, you shall not curse the ruler of your people. Of course, then the preacher takes this verse and goes on to say, see, the Bible teaches we should never speak evil of our civil rulers. Never speak evil of our civil rulers. And of course, such an assertion flies in the face of all of Holy Scripture. Because we have to ask ourselves first, what of the prophets who denounced unjust and immoral civil rulers of Israel and denounced religious rulers in Israel, including calling them names? There's only scores of examples we could look at in Scripture. Such an assertion that we should never speak ill of a civil ruler based on this passage flies in the face of the rest of Scripture where the prophets again and again speak evil of rulers. What of Jesus himself who denounced unjust and immoral civil rulers and religious rulers, including calling them names? Was it wrong that Paul called the high priest a whitewashed wall here? Jesus called the scribes and Pharisees, the whole group, whitewashed tombs in Matthew 23, verse 27. He went on to call them serpents. He went on to call them a brood of vipers. He went on to note their murder and violence and bloodshed that they had been involved in against the prophets. He called Herod a fox. In other words, a sly animal, a crafty, sly animal, a crafty predator. He was not speaking well of Herod. He was speaking evil of him. But that wasn't all that Jesus was communicating when he called Herod a fox. He was also calling Herod an insignificant base person. There was an idiom in the day where leaders... Civil leaders would be referred to as either a lion or a fox. A good leader was looked upon as a lion. A base leader was referred to as a fox. In other words, the fox lacks real power and dignity, and he uses cunning and deceit to achieve his aims. They got the idiom, his hearers, when you look at what he said there. Herod wanted to get Jesus And Jesus said, I still have things to do for my father. And he said, go tell that fox. My point simply is, Jesus was speaking evil of the civil and religious rulers. And it's sad to listen to churchmen and scholars grovel all over the place, either trying to make excuses for Paul or outright condemning Paul here for calling the high priest a whitewashed wall. That was really the least of things he could have said to him. First Kings chapter 21. Turn there with me. I wrote this down because one of the scholars I was reading used this verse to try and teach this submission to government that if you disobey God or the king, you blaspheme God or the king, then guess what happens to you? 
you get killed. Your property gets seized. So I wanted to see that verse because that sounded not right to me. And my suspicions bore out to be proper. Verse 10 says, And seat two men, scoundrels before him, to bear witness against him, saying, You have blasphemed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him that he may die. And the scholar proffered this, that, see, we don't speak bad about government officials and we don't speak bad about God. Do you know what the context here is? The context here is Jezebel writing a bogus letter in place of her husband, King Ahab, who was a wicked king, in order to seize land, Naboth's land, through deceit and through tyranny. It says in verse 8, And she wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with his seal, and sent the letters to the elders and the nobles who were dwelling in the city with Naboth, She wrote in the letters saying, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth with high honor among the people and seat two men, scoundrels, before him to bear witness against him, saying, You have blasphemed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him that he may die. So the scholar proffers this as an example of why we should not blaspheme the king, not speak ill or evil of our civil rulers. In reality, this situation is the opposite. It's an example of the state putting itself on par with God. This is Jezebel in good statist fashion putting God and King Ahab on par with one another. Sounds strangely familiar? Which is exactly what the churchmen of today are doing when they say we should not speak against evil rulers. They are putting them on par with God. Most churchmen today view the voice of the state as the voice of God. I have heard them say as much regularly. There are many pastors and churchmen who teach blind obedience to the civil authorities because they want the people in their church to also have blind obedience to them. And most people in their churches do not study themselves and are deceived by these fraudulent churchmen. As a churchman, I learned long ago that those pastors who put on the most gentle outward behavior with their pretend love and effeminate slogans are the most hateful in heart. And they're the most deluded. And they are enormous in number in America right now. So this passage does not mean we are never to speak ill or evil of our civil rulers, or not denounce the evil they do. The reality is, in this situation, Paul did not know who the high priest was. He did not know how evil Ananias was. He is before Jewish rulers. As he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, to the Jews I became a Jew. That's exactly what he's doing here. He had appealed to Jewish law that what Ananias had done was wrong according to Jewish law. So he appeals to Jewish law to rectify the situation regarding what he had said. He was hoping at first to persuade the council and appeal to their Jewishness like he had done in chapter 22 with the people. By appealing to Jewish law, it was also a reproof to Ananias who had violated it and had said nothing himself. 
So in verses 6 through 8, the passage goes on and says, But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. And this brings us to the second sudden turn in this narrative. Paul sizes up the situation and turns the tables on the council. He realizes he could appeal to the resurrection as a means to divide the council. He realized nothing good or honest was going to happen here after being busted in the mouth. It is sad to watch the churchmen and scholars of our day, and I know I keep saying this, but I do a lot of study in preparation. And when you read these guys, you're just like, and I'm older now and I've listened to what they've said over the years in their sermons. It's sad. It's sad to watch the churchmen and scholars of our day disparage Paul for what he does here. And almost all of them do. They disparage Paul here. Oh, he didn't share the gospel with them. He just played them against one another. Really? He understood the nature of these men, actually, because he's not like the little fairies who sit in their ivory towers and pump out sermons and little booklets all their lives and speak at conferences everywhere and never get out on the street and actually get their fingernails dirty with the culture and take it to task for its evils, idols, and tyrants. He understood what they were. Unlike these lounge chair quarterbacks, Speaking about what he did, yeah, they sickened me. He understood the nature of these men. They were like the churchmen of our day. They loved to argue about all their religious differences and put on airs of spirituality and propriety, but they have an utter indifference to the things that are dear to God's heart, like justice. Utter indifference. It's easy for these soft chair theologians, these people-pleasing pastors to disparage Paul. They have no true heart for our Lord or for the expansion of his kingdom in the earth like Paul did. They did not get physically attacked the day before. They didn't spend the night in jail. They are pretentious, soft people-pleasers, and they attract the same sort of despicable people to their moose clubs that they refer to as churches. And that's the state of things in America. And if you doubt it, visit churches. If you're a man, you're sickened by it. A bunch of effeminate panders to the people. Join my moose club. Be a part of our little dopey deal we got going on here. It sickens me. While the nation burns itself into the ground, while God's word speaks to every area of life, those dopes, those frauds, sit in their pulpits week after week and say nothing. I'm amazed at how long a person can speak and say nothing, but if you wonder how that can be, listen to your average churchman in America today. He can gabble on forever and say nothing. And people are sick of it. At least some are. And they're leaving their churches in droves right now. 
There's still the vast minority because most people just want someone who pats them on the head and affirms their lifestyle. Doesn't call them to repentance. Doesn't show them what God has to say in His Word. Have no interest in seeing application of His law and Word to every area of their life and every area of life. Most people are so narcissistic in our culture. They love those type of sermons. All looking inward. Ooh, me. You know, self-help programs. That's what their sermons are really. It's disturbing to watch. We serve Christ. His kingdom changes the kingdoms of the earth. His law, word, and gospel changes individuals and it changes nations. And these guys are happy with their moose club over in the corner of irrelevance. And in right now, what they're doing is they're aiding and abetting the most wicked men amongst us. And I will be talking about critical race theory, intersectionality, and social justice here in the near future and taking those thoughts to task, which these churchmen have been schooled in because the leftists have been funding evangelical organizations, ministries, churches, and seminaries for over 15 years now. They took the money, the whores that they are, from wicked men, and now they're aiding and abetting their evil. You know how many churchmen in this city alone took federal money for their church? Whores that they are. Bought and paid for by the state. Already 501c3s made themselves creatures of the state, and now they're going to sit there and add this to their sin and crime and take money from the state. You know how many of them stayed closed down because they intended to take money from the state? Aiding and abetting that false narrative that our government was pushing, that, oh, there's a pandemic, and ooh, we should be scared poopless, and we should be concerned, and I watched the dopes all do it. Me and Clara were talkers. We pick up conversations with everybody, anywhere we go. Yesterday we were at a place eating. It was like a ghost town. The tables are all apart. We were hungry as all get out. I had a busy day. I won't even tell you what all it was. It's a miracle I got any sermon together at all. <laughs> and I struck up a conversation with this one couple. They're in, the to- they're in town because their grandchild, their first grandchild was born. Haven't seen the grandchild in three months. The daughter finally said, we'll let you look through the window. So they came to the house, looked through the window. I mean, how's this? Who are these people? You know, they walk around with their masks. I'm like, what are you, insane? It's like, do a little reading, do a little research. Then they explained to me how they, and this is, I always do this on purpose. I say, yeah, that dopey COVID thing. I always say that. So I had already said that earlier in the conversation. And then they're telling me about this. And then they told me that they didn't come out of their house for three months straight themselves. They were younger than me and Clara. I was like, who lives? What? It's an insane asylum. You know who makes them that pliable to tyranny? Their pulpits overwhelmingly, their pulpits. Most of them went to the state public school where they were taught to line up like little, do whatever you're told, 
Who? Yes. I was always at the principal's office getting my butt beat. Back then, you could hit people still. Now we aid and abet bad kids, don't we? (laughs) Bad teacher. (laughs) More lawlessness, children. More lawlessness, you know? That's the kind of insane asylum we live in now. So anyways, God took that within me and actually uses it for good now, you know, within the realm of Christianity, right? Verses 9 and 10 go on and it says, Then there arose a loud, loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose in protest. And I've seen this with the churchmen all my life. They'll get all in, all worked up about something, and I'm just like looking, thinking, I'm not getting involved in that. Why would I use up my time for that? And your dopey little religious argument. Meanwhile, there's meaningful things that can be accomplished in the earth, like get married, have children, establish a home, live for God faithfully, take to task these wicked dogs who are using the arm of the state to create evil in people's lives. Yeah, those things are a little more important to me than their little dopey religious argument. They're all ready to kill each other. Okay? There's a loud outcry. And they're saying, we find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Now when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. So this didn't go good, right? Notice this is the second time this commander has saved Paul's life has interposed for Paul and protected him. It says in verse 11, But the following night the Lord stood by Paul and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Bear witness at Rome. This would have been very needed for Paul at this time. This is what I refer to as one of those special times with him. Paul had wanted to go to Rome. We know that from Romans chapter 15 when he wrote the epistle prior to what is taking place here in history. Romans 15, verses 24 through 29. He had wanted to go to Rome, planned to go to Rome. He was probably wondering at this point if he'd make it out of Jerusalem alive. He needed this encouragement to continue forward. He needed it. And the Lord appears to him and tells him, Be of good cheer, Paul. For as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness to Rome. You know how much this meant to Paul? He didn't care about all the fuzzy religious stuff. He cared about him and faithfully serving him in the earth. That's what he cared about. And to have the Lord appear and say this, I know that meant the world to him. It was a great encouragement to him. And now in verse 12 comes another sudden turn or twist within our narrative. From verse 12 to the end is a story about an assassination attempt on Paul's life. Will he make it out of Jerusalem? Will he make it to Rome? It says in verse 12, And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. 
By the way, in this story, Paul does get away, just so you know. And here's a, here's a, here's a question I always had when I was a young Christian. So like, did those guys just die? You know, did, they couldn't eat or drink, Paul got away, they just died, right? It must, that must have been awful. And the truth of the matter is, you know how the Jewish rabbis were. They were good at making, there was what was true, and then there were all their dispensations or exceptions. <laughs> and one of the exceptions was, if you could not complete your vow for circumstances outside of your control, you were freed from your vow. So since Paul got away, no, by that evening they were all down at Big Boy eating hamburgers. So, so don't feel bad about them. It says in verse 13, Now there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him, but we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Verse 16, so when Paul's sister's son, this would be Paul's nephew, heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. I couldn't help but think here about the goodness of family. <laughs> you know, it's like... <laughs> This little obscure nephew of mine, you know, <laughs> somehow hears about this plot and comes and tells me about it. Right? Paul's got to be thinking, the goodness of family. <laughs> it is good to find a spouse. It is good to have children together. It is good to establish a home. There's such a goodness in that. There's a goodness in having many children. If you raise them up right, the Bible says they are arrows. In his hand. Amen? And that's what we should do. It goes on here in verse... And by the way, some of you here are at that stage where you're like looking for that person or you're thinking about... I know women start thinking about their wedding day from the time they're four or five years old. Men never think about it till about 12 hours before they have to be up there. And if you're a man that isn't that way, don't tell anybody because we'll think less of you. <laughs> um, so anyway, it's like looking for your spouse, young men and young ladies, massively important. Spend time with them, watch them, watch them in church if they go to the same church, watch them in ministry if they do ministry. These things are very important to do. Because whoever you wed can be a great benefit to you or a great hindrance to you. Understand that. It's a hugely important. So I pray that God gives you the right man or the right woman, whatever the case may be, and that you use wisdom as you watch. And I won't go into all the minutiae that all that entails right now. Verse um 17 says, Then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand, went aside and asked privately, What is it that you have to tell me? 
And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them, for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. Loose lips sink ships. (laughs) He didn't want nobody to know. He only wanted himself to know. That's the type of treachery that goes on in politics. That's the type of treachery that goes on in many workplaces, (laughs) as most of you know. So yeah, loose lips sink ships, keep your mouth shut. And he called for two centurions, saying, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea. Remember, that's the main capital for the Roman government there in Palestine. At the third hour of the night, that would be at 9 p.m., they're going to leave. Once it got dark, we're heading out. What I found interesting here is the response of this magistrate that he interposes for Paul again here on a third occasion in about 48 hours' time, 72 hours' time. That's got to warm your heart to see God's... You know, God has different things for... Different people. And Paul eventually was martyred from what we know historically for the faith. But it wasn't his time. And the interposition of this magistrate is really astounding. Understand this magistrate knew what Ananias was. That he was a dog. That he would assassinate people. That he does take bribes. He probably may have taken some bribes himself. Instead of going along with what Ananias and his boys want to pull off, he sides with Paul, puts together 470 Roman soldiers, and rescues Paul's life from their hand. That's pretty astounding, isn't it? It says in verse 24, and provide mounts to set Paul on. Paul didn't even have to walk. He was one of the, he had a horse. And bring him safely to Felix, the governor. He wrote in the letter following in the following matter, Claudius Lysias, I think, as pure speculation, but I think Luke wanted to put this letter in here because he wanted the name of this magistrate known to all of history because of his inner position for Paul. I believe that's why he put this letter in. Claudius Lysias, that isn't his real name. Remember, this guy had bought his Roman citizenship. We know he bought it while Claudius was emperor because you always took the emperor at the time's name. So it was Claudius Lysias. To the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. 
and it, when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. This interposition of this magistrate has to remind you of Frederick the Wise and how he interposed for Luther. Understand, Frederick the Wise was a hardcore Roman Catholic. Understand that he had the largest collection of relics, of relics of anyone in all the Holy Roman Empire. He's ordered by the Holy Roman Emperor to turn him over, turn Luther over to be killed as a notorious heretic. And instead, he feigns his kidnapping and hides him in the castle at Wartburg, castle of Wartburg in Eisenach. And Luther spends his year there translating the New Testament into German, giving the people, at least the New Testament, in their vernacular and actually creating a unified language for the German people for the first time ever in their history. You can't help but see that here with this guy, how God works in the affairs of men for his purposes that he wants to accomplish in the earth. The interposition of this commander is incredible. All for what? To get Paul to Rome. To continue to teach the magistrates what God's word says regarding his law, his salvation. Instruction, I'm sure, about their office. And on down the line. Notice two things about this letter, however. Did two things stick out in your mind? You know me, I'm not... Don't you always hate when people ask you a question and it's like, you know, they just want to ask you a question so you look stupid? Because kind of the way they set it up is kind of like stupid itself. You're just like, oh, okay, so he thinks he's greater and smarter and wiser. So he's going to ask this question and then you're going to answer and then he's going to pull the rug out from under you. No, no, this is what... (laughs) Okay. Do you guys live on this planet? Has that ever happened to you? Have you not seen people like that? I despise them. I think they're despicable people. Just be honest. Just speak frankly. They put themselves above everyone. You know, and you're not sure really what they're saying. Oh man. So anyway, what two things, this isn't a trick question, okay? What two things popped out in your mind while you were reading this letter? Everyone's really scared to venture that out. <laughs> That's what I said, right? Okay, the first thing that probably popped out into your mind was the fact of where he says here, coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. He came to rescue him without him knowing he was a Roman. Remember? In chapter 21 or 22, whatever it was. He didn't learn he was a Roman until after he had rescued him. And the second thing you should notice is, notice he doesn't bring up the fact that he was going to scourge them. Scourge Paul, I mean. He does not bring that up, does he? He doesn't bring that up. This is just human nature. Okay? First off, we always reconfigure everything that happened where we look a little better than if we rolled the tape, it would probably look. <laughs> And I've had experiences in my life where I've actually thought I did one thing and was really good, and then I someone actually filmed it, and when I saw it, I was like, 
You know, that wasn't really that great. <laughs> so anyway, and he's got political reasons behind it too because, yeah, he could have gotten in trouble for even preparing to scourge him like he did when he's a Roman citizen. He doesn't want to mention that. Anyways, verse 31, Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipratus. The next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and return to the barracks. When they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. He probably asked him what jurisdiction he comes from because he was hoping to pawn this off on some other jurisdiction. But when Paul said Celestia, he's knew, all right, I got to deal with this. <laughs> so, so the first thing he wants to do is have An- Ananias and his boys come over and have him and Paul battle it out. That's what we're going to see in chapter 24 is the battle that takes place there. In the midst of all this that's going on, Paul has all this opportunity to be around Roman magistrates and speak to Roman magistrates about the things of God, which is really exciting to see. Let's stand up. We'll close in a word of prayer.